Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. This week we speak with international lawyer, activist, and former PLO negotiator, Diana Bhutto, about the state of the Palestinian cause. Stay with us. As the Palestinian cause and the non-violent boycott, divestment, sanctions movement have become increasingly popular in the West, so have efforts to sweep Palestine under the rug redoubled in ferocity in West and Arabian Gulf capitals, where despots of all stripes are desperately trying to deny the legitimate aspirations of their own peoples. Khalil Bendib spoke with international lawyer, activist, and former PLO negotiator Diana Bhutto about the state of the Palestinian cause at a time when an international conspiracy by colonialist and neocolonialist regimes worldwide is frantically busy rolling back a cause that has become an international rallying cry for struggles against injustice everywhere whether the Black Lives Matter movement, democracy movements in the Middle East and North Africa regions, or any liberation and fights against oppression and inequality in the world. Diana, first, if you don't mind, a little bit of biographical information for our listeners who may not already be familiar with you. You were born in Canada to Palestinian parents. How did your family end up in Canada? As you know and your listeners know, in in 1948, was the Nakba, which is the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. During that period, Israel ethnically cleansed 75% of the Palestinian population, leaving behind roughly 150,000 Palestinians. And my parents were two of those 150,000 Palestinians. So there are Palestinians who remained in what became Israel, historic Palestine, 48 Palestine, after the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. And and so they lived under a system of military rule that was in place from between the years 1948 to 1966. And uh, what that meant was that, kind of like the system that's in place now in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip, they needed to be able to obtain permits to go from one city to the next. And what that meant was just like it is we see today in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip as well, that they had no control over their lives. They had no real control over their ability to get a decent education. And work was obviously very difficult for them to be able to obtain because in order to be able to get a permit to travel from one area to the next, you had to be in the good graces of the Israeli military commander. So my parents, very soon after they got married, uh, decided that they didn't want to have children in Nazareth, in what became Israel, that they couldn't live under a system of uh, discrimination. They couldn't live under Israeli military rule any longer. They couldn't live as second-class citizens in their own homeland. And it was because of that that they decided to immigrate to Canada. And that's where I ended up being born along with my sisters and being raised there. Over the development of your career, you have also held a fellowship at the Stanford Center for Conflict Resolution 
and negotiation. You were also uh, an instructor at Harvard Extension School, as well as being a spokesperson for the PLO for several years. You taught uh, a Harvard course entitled Negotiation Skills, Strategies for Increased Effectiveness. Diana, how do you have real negotiation between two parties when one party can get all it wants through other means? And the Palestinians negotiating with Israel are akin to a chicken negotiating with the fox over the future of the hen house. You don't. There were no real negotiations. And I can give you lots of anecdotes if you're interested. Yes. Look, very early on, I moved to Palestine in 20 years ago, last month, actually, from the Bay Area. And at that time, it was somewhat similar in terms of the media that, that we were being fed and the, at least the media that I was consuming. And at that time, the media that I was consuming was very much talking about this as being a, a negotiation between equals and that this was somehow going to resolve everything, that all that it really required was for these leaders for lack of a better term, to get together in the same room and to hash it out. When you actually live in Palestine, you see a very different reality, very different from the one that's being explained in the mainstream media. And that reality is exactly as you mentioned, which is that there are no real negotiations between these parties, but that it's really a question of um, a gun being held to your head and being told, where exactly would you like to, how would it, is it exactly that you would like to die? This was the flavor of negotiations that we had over there. And I can give many examples. For example, I can tell you that at one point, a negotiation that many people continue to laud and to applaud, including a lot of progressive thinkers, they continue to talk about the Taba negotiations as being the most amazing negotiations. Now, just to give some background, Taba was happened in January of 2001, just as President Clinton had one foot out of the door, leaving the White House, and as President Bush was being inaugurated. In fact, it happened immediately after that. Many people still said, well, "Oh, you, you came so close during those negotiations," and what they don't realize was that was just a statement that was given for spin. And not much, not beyond that, what really happened at those negotiations was, I can tell you that at one point, we were sitting in a room with an, with an and, Israeli... You were, and you were there, personally, you were part there. of the PLO. Exactly, I was personally there. And I remember at one negotiation where we were discussing the issue of borders, the Israeli map maker and the Israeli team pulled out a map of the West Bank, they had a, a like a purple marker and they drew a line that cut into the West Bank by about 26 kilometers. So that's, let's, let's say around 18 miles into the West Bank and looped in to grab the West Bank settlement of Ariel and then back again. And I spoke to the Israeli negotiator and said, can you explain to me on what basis of international law do you claim that you have the right to take 26 kilometers into the West Bank to take an Israeli settlement that is, by the way, illegal 
under international law and that nobody recognizes as legal. And he looked at me and smiled and he said, listen, and I quote, we will respect international law when we are forced to respect international law. What is this international law that you're talking about? Until that time, it's just you and me in a room. And that was what the flavor of negotiations was between Israel and the PLO. There were no real negotiations. It was always a question of they wanted us to just give a nod and a smile and acquiesce to every demand that they made. And if we didn't acquiesce and give a nod and a smile, then somehow we were the ones who didn't want freedom and instead were choosing occupation when really what was on offer was just a different repackaging of occupation. And you know, I can go into so many of the stories of, for example, Palestinian negotiators being held for hours at an Israeli checkpoint waiting to get the appropriate clearance to be able to even go to a negotiating session. So when you describe it being as the fox and the the chicken negotiating over the future of the hen house, this is precisely what it was like, and in some cases even even worse than that. So this fallacy of symmetry, when there's a real imbalance of power that has been promoted by our captive corporate media, as you know, it's both of them, you know, they're both so unreasonable. So this is the best we get when we don't actually get the narrative that Israel is the victim. At best, we get this, well, you know, on both sides, they don't want to negotiate on both sides, they're unreasonable. This fake symmetry that doesn't exist in reality is something I, I came up against as a political cartoonist and commentator. It just this full censorship, full brunt of censorship that's felt by anybody who has any sympathy with the Palestinian cause. It just doesn't go through and it's reflected on site right there in Palestine where one side feels doesn't really have to negotiate. I read though your September editorial in the New York Times. In this article you say, quote, Mr. Abbas and other Palestinian leaders should aim to provide a workable strategy for achieving our rights rather than working to appease Israel and the international donor community by adopting an anti-apartheid strategy, end of quote. Yes. Do you have a feeling that Palestinian authorities, top brass today, are more interested in their own self-preservation than the future of Palestine? I think that it's a little more complicated than that. I think that what's happened is that they have mixed, they view that the future of Palestine is intricately and intimately intertwined with their future. And so they think that if Mahmoud Abbas is no longer to be the leader, that Palestine will somehow collapse. It's a level of egocentrism and narcissism that views that somehow they are the only people who can make the right decisions for Palestine, that we don't have any agency, particularly not people who are younger, and that the future of us as a nation and our cause is so intertwined with them. 
in a positive way, not in a negative way, that if they were to leave the scene, that disaster will befall us. And the reality is exactly the opposite, that when I wrote those words, it's because we are now on the 27th anniversary of the start of this negotiations process. And in, over the course of 27 years, we've seen just how bad things have become. We've seen that there's now a tripling in the number of Israeli settlers. We've seen that now one out of every four residents of the West Bank is an Israeli settler. We've seen that more land has been taken under the guise of peace process. There are now more than 500 checkpoints and roadblocks in a tiny little space of land. Fewer than 10% of Palestinians have the ability to even apply to get a permit to visit places like Jerusalem and Nazareth. The West Bank is completely under siege and lockdown. And yet, despite all of the evidence that shows just how bad this Oslo process has been for us, we still have these leaders who continue to insist that this is the only way forward. And the reason that they do so is because they have made our society so donor dependent that, that they're really just parroting exactly what the donors want to hear. The donors want to hear us engage in a quote unquote peace process because it means that they don't have to impose sanctions. It means that they don't have to do anything. They can just sit back and say, oh, well, you know, the parties are going to resolve it themselves. And as a result, the, the Palestinian Authority seems to just parrot those words, which is why it's so vital now that we have a different leadership with a different direction and a different vision. When you say the donor community, that's a very interesting term. Can you give us a snapshot of who some of these major donors are? Yes, the largest bilateral donor, so the, the largest single donor is, I believe, still Norway, although I might be mistaken. But the major donors to the Palestinian Authority are the European Union, the Arab League and individual member states of the Arab League were also very large donors and supporters. There was some money that was coming in from the United States, but that has since dried up under the Trump administration. And I also believe that we've got donors such as Japan and others. And, and what's important to note is that money doesn't come to Palestine without strings attached. There are always strings attached. And the strings can take different forms. Some of those strings take the form of pushing for resumption of the peace process. Some of those strings take the form of assuaging uh, European guilt over the Holocaust and making sure that there really is nothing done to push for Palestinian freedom, but money that comes just to make sure that Palestinians remain silent. There are strings attached that say that, for example, organizations can't be pushing and the, and the Palestinian Authority, uh, the Palestinian Authority itself can't be pushing for the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, can't be supporting it. 
there are strings attached that are also strings that look the other way. When we see that the Palestinian Authority is cracking down on NGOs, it's cracking down on dissenters, it's cracking down on media, it's controlling the judiciary, these same donors who talk about promoting democracy and promoting freedom turn a blind eye because this Palestinian authority is the same authority that is willing to either engage in negotiations with Israel or willing to do Israel's uh, dirty work by acting as its security collaborator, meaning that it's willing to go into Palestinian homes and, and arrest activists and imprison them and torture them. So the money that come forward, especially when it comes to countries, there are always strings attached. And this is why I talk about how important it is for us to regain our own independence in decision-making rather than be so driven by what it is that others around the world want. And the same article in New York Times, you said, again, quote, the Palestinian leadership and the international community must together acknowledge this reality and chart a genuine new course that prioritizes the realization of Palestinian freedom rather than normalizing the denial of freedom, end of quote. How do you make this shift and how do you go about this new approach? I think it comes on two levels. The first level is that there needs to be a leadership that is actually advocating this. And right now we just don't have that. We have a leadership that is intent on holding on for dear life, really, in the hopes that somehow Trump will not be elected in, in three weeks or whenever the election is. So that's on, on one level. We need a leadership that is pushing for that. But beyond that, there has been a lot of movement, a lot of effort by people around the world to press and to push for the boycott divestment sanctions movement to take off. And, the, and there really has been a lot of number of achievements. The place where there needs to be a lot more focus is on countering and pushing back against a lot of this international donor pressure to continue negotiations. And this is why I think it's so vital for people to be working within their communities to press for BDS, but beyond pressing for BDS on a, on a local level, to also be pressing for Israel to be held accountable. Without doing that, then we're going to be stuck in this same situation for many years to come. And so I'll, I'll give you an example, just so that you can see how, how skewed we are in terms of, of the world. In 1988, the PLO took the step of recognizing Israel. And after taking that step in 1988, it was again affirmed in 1993 with Oslo and with the signing of Oslo and the Declaration of Principles. And by signing on to Oslo, the PLO then paved the way for other countries to also begin to not only recognize Israel, but establish diplomatic ties with Israel. And just immediately after, from 1994 onward, 23 countries ended up establishing diplomatic ties with Israel, including Jordan. And trade offices were opening up in Morocco and in the Gulf as well. And that was all the result of Oslo. 
Now, that was something that the donor community very much applauded. Now, you know, fast forward to the year 2011, and in 2011, when the PLO should have taken the step of pushing for the boycott of Israel, pushing for Israel to be divested from, pushing for sanctions on Israel. Why? Because you'll recall that in 2008 and 2009 was the first very vicious attack on the Gaza Strip. Instead of pushing for BDS, the PLO embarked on a very silly project called statehood and recognition of the state. So we're now in this very weird space where here we are in 2020, where you have countries around the world who have recognized Israel and are so pleased that the PLO has recognized Israel, are equally pleased and are pushing for the Gulf to also recognize Israel, and at the same time also saying that either they're going to you know, make the bold step of recognizing Palestine, which means nothing, but not taking any steps to actually press for Israel to end its military occupation. So here's where we are now in this skewed world where we can have all this wonderful recognition, but the reality on the ground is that that occupation is not ending. The apartheid system is not ending. And each of these countries gets to pat themselves on the back and applaud themselves and say, we've done a great job. We are pro-Palestine and pro-Israel. When in reality, all that they've done is give Israel bonus points for continuing to maintain an occupation for 53 years and continue to give Israel bonus points for instituting apartheid all of this time. And this is why I think it's so important for the shift to take place, that it no longer be focused on this idea of statehood, but instead really advocating for an anti-apartheid campaign and for states to be made aware of the apartheid that exists and to be pressing for an end to apartheid. What happened in the 60s and 70s was the Algerian model was very prominent Absolutely. in people's uh, minds, people who were trying to liberate their countries. And somehow Algeria wasn't seen as, as an odd, uh, almost except an exception, but it was seen as the new norm. Algeria put up a fierce resistance and it paid for independence very dearly. Uh, more yes. than a million people died at the hands of the French. We call it a genocide more than the war. but. A lot of other movements like the Palestinian liberation movement fixated on that, thinking perhaps the military struggle is the solution. And yet that has led them nowhere because even worse than France, I mean, we have the USA and all or most of the Western world pushing so hard on the side of, of Israel. This now, as you were saying, has led us to a place, uh, an absurd Kafkaesque world where the more Israel expands, the more it is rewarded by countries like UAE and Bahrain, and perhaps yes. more coming in, in their wake. Prominent Saudi Prince Bendar last week chastised Palestinian leaders for deploring Arabian Gulf states' betrayal of Palestine, 
with this normalization of relations with Israel. This yes. at the time when Israel is overtly expanding and denying any hope of a hypothetical mini future state for Palestinians. What explains this historic betrayal today? I think you started already explaining it, but that all of a sudden you have this rush by all these little tin pot despots in the Middle East to join the crowd and be among those who are closer and cozier with Israel. Perhaps Saudi Arabia might be next. Well, look, I think birds of a feather flock together as the saying goes. <laughs> yes. These are not countries that can be claimed to be democracies in any right. These are countries that have also gone after people who are openly critical of, of the government. And whether it's in Bahrain and suppressing those protests and torturing people or the UAE, where I know that there are thousands of people who want to speak out, but who are too afraid to do so, or Saudi Arabia and, and the actions that it's taken against its citizens and against non-citizens. These are not countries that are democracies. These are countries that are looking to Israel because they're looking to really capitalize on a lot of the security technology that Israel has produced and that it's tested on Palestinians. So these are more business arrangements more than anything else. And, you know, I want to say something about Prince Bandar and his approach. It's an approach that since the announcement of the normalization that I have been hearing over and over again, and that quite frankly, I'm a little bit tired of. I get many calls or receive many calls, many emails from a lot of people who are living in the Gulf and who tell me that we Palestinians are somehow supposed to shut up and just be grateful for everything that each of these countries has done for us. And I want to be clear, Palestinians are grateful for the fact that a lot of the Gulf states and other states that have provided financial support in times of need. That's something that I'm not going to dismiss or, or somehow disagree with. At the same time, I think one thing that people don't understand is that this idea that Palestinians should be grateful for money that's thrown their way is an idea that the Israelis have long held. You really don't know Palestinians if you think that just by throwing money our way that somehow you can purchase us. The Israeli uh, prime minister who later became president, Shimon Peres, was one of the first advocates of this concept of economic, quote unquote, peace. And in his model, the issue was if you just bring up the standard of living of Palestinians in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip, and those who are living in 48 Palestine, then somehow you can just do away with them and you, you can do away with our political claims and our rights. And instead that we should be grateful for employment that's provided our way. And, and, and interesting, I'll tell you a very quick side note, there used to be a whole body within the Israeli army that literally, and I mean quite literally, counted how many refrigerators people had as an indicator of how much better off people's lives were between the early 60s and then, of course, the late 60s. And this continued all the way into the 70s, late 70s. And so this concept of, of somehow throw money our way 
and we should be grateful for it and that this is enough and that we just don't need rights is something that the Israelis have been pushing for a long time. And it's it's shocking to me, shocking that I hear people like Bandar and others advocating this same message that we should just somehow go with the flow and really just accept the money and be grateful for the money that has been pushed our way. I can tell you that Palestinians are much more looking for political support because we can live off of the land. And I don't want to romanticize it, but we can. We've suffered through a very hard time living in our homeland. What's really needed is for our suffering to end. And that's only going to come through political support. So I, I would much rather see that these Arab states would be pushing and using their clout to hold Israel accountable rather than taking this odd stance of being pro-Israel and pro-Palestine at the same time. What they're really doing is being pro-apartheid. That is international lawyer, activist, and former PLO negotiator Diana Bhutto speaking with Khalil Bendib about the state of the Palestinian struggle. We'll hear more after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Since 2006, Palestinians have been divided between Gaza and the West Bank. We've seen how divided nations such as Syria and Libya or Yemen can quickly devolve into a free-for-all zone where foreign powers conduct proxy wars that complicate the divisions already existing at the local level. Palestine historically has suffered somewhat from this syndrome. There were always different factions within the PLO, etc., how, how do the Palestinians unite? How can they dream of uniting and escaping this conundrum? How do you see the prospect of Palestinian unity returning, given the complexities and rivalries in place? That's a great question. I don't want to be too simplistic, but the metaphor that I've been told is, and that I use is that the differences between Hamas and Fatah are really the equivalent of two bald men we're fighting over a comb. <laughs> and, uh, like and it that. really is that. It, it really is that. And the, the reason that that is so apt is because there is no difference between what Hamas wants, what Fatah wants, what the PFLP wants, the Communist Party wants. All Palestinians are united on one thing. We want our freedom. That's it. There isn't like this massive distinction between what the ultimate goal is. The big problem has been that a lot of what's prevented unity 
has been both the existence of Oslo and the, the idea that Fatah remains very wedded to this Oslo framework and the peace process and negotiations. That's one thing. And the other thing is that there is, sadly, there's a level of comfort that these political parties have in division. It's easy to be divided and to manage the little areas that you have. It's much more difficult to be united and to have to face real questions about strategy and vision and liberation and all of these things. So it's it's really interesting when you look at public opinion polls, that the public opinion polls here in Palestine, if you ask people what is the number one issue that is affecting you, the number one issue is the lack of unity. It's division. So I believe that these can be overcome, but there just is right now no real desire, on the certainly not on the part of Fatah. I can't really speak to Hamas because I haven't been to Gaza in many, many years, but certainly not on the part of Fatah to actually do any reconciliation. They're much more wedded to the idea of remaining in control. And that's it. After my opinion piece appeared in the Times, there were other calls for unity and for elections. And just a little bit under two weeks ago, the PLO announced that there are going to be elections on all levels, on the the presidential level, on the parliamentary level, and most importantly, on the PLO level. I'm skeptical that this is actually going to happen Although I'm skeptical, I have to, we have to keep pressing them to have these elections. Because, as I mentioned, when you see the public opinion polls are saying that national unity is the number one issue, and when you're seeing that on a platform level, there really is no difference between Hamas and, and Fatah in terms of ultimate goal, you can see that there is a way of being able to move forward, but it requires political will on their part to actually move the process ahead. And I personally believe that if they're not willing to move the process ahead, we have to move the process ahead and let them lag behind. Diana, the question of equal rights, as you're advocating for Palestinians within historical Palestine, which is the only solution even approaching something like fairness, raises the question of a one-state solution for all who live there, regardless of religion, which is the very negation of Zionism as we know it, and as Zionist hegemony in the West wants it. How do we get there from here, given the amount of power wielded by Zionists worldwide when it comes to the question of Palestine? The media, everything is, as far as the West is concerned, the establishment is on the side of Zionists. How do you imagine this happening over time? We're getting there. There's a few ways. First is, this is already functionally one state. When you, for example, drive into a settlement, there isn't a sign that says, welcome to occupied territory. You are now about (laughs) to enter into occupied territory. There's no such thing. For example, each one of the major Israeli banks has branches in each of the Israeli settlements. There isn't a separate banking law for Israeli settlers versus those who are living in 48. It doesn't exist. 
it functionally is already one state. The difference is, is that it's one state, but with two different systems of rights. So while you don't see the sign that says, welcome to occupied territory, you do see a sign that says you are about to enter into a Palestinian authority controlled area, enter at your own risk. And in those areas, there are different sets of laws for different people. This has always been the case since 1948. Even with Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, they're of a different legal class than Jewish Israeli citizens, which is to say that they don't get the exact same rights. So we are already functioning as one state. It's just a state of apartheid. That's what it is. And already there are, there are some cracks that are beginning to erode in the system. First, we hear Israelis talking about apartheid. By the way, it's not spoken about in a negative way. It's actually spoken about kind of in a positive way. They're a little bit proud of the apartheid that they have. Israeli leaders talk about it all the time. They often say, we are going down the path of apartheid. And they're not ashamed about it, by the way. There's no shame for them. So the cracks in the system is that, that people are already starting to speak about it, including Israelis. And there's already a growing one state movement that is developing on both sides of the green line. I happen to be a member of, of this movement, and I find it very fascinating to watch. The other thing is that if you look at public opinion polls just in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, public opinion polls are now showing that more people, around one third of people, support one state then, which is kind of fascinating given that, that there isn't a single political party that's advocating this. More people believe that two states are not possible and is not the optimal solution. So while they may not necessarily advocate one state, they believe that two states is not the optimum solution. So again, we're already going down this path, coupled with the fact that I think that in the coming years that we're going to start seeing much more in terms of an anti-apartheid struggle, that it's just a question of time. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of money to keep this system functioning. And yes, there's a lot of money flowing. Yes, there's a lot of energy. And yes, there's a lot of political will. But I take comfort in the fact that if you think back to apartheid South Africa, if you think back to 1984, or let's say 1983, in 1983, I don't think that anybody could have projected forward and said, in 10 years, 11 years time, Mandela is going to be released, and apartheid will fall, and he's going to become the president of a free South Africa. I just don't see that that was something that could have been predicted. And similarly, we're in the year 2020. Now, I can't predict what 2030 is going to look like, but I certainly wouldn't be somebody who's betting on the continuation of apartheid. These things have a, have a dynamic of their own, and the cracks are already there. Um, when you see that, for example, in the one state group that I am a part of in, in, that's in 48, Palestine, that there are a large number of Jewish Israelis who have signed on and a large number of Jewish Israelis who don't believe in the system any longer, you can see that the cracks 
are there and forming. And I believe in the power of people to be able to push back against against this hegemony. If I'm not mistaken, even the Israeli president, Reuven Rivlin, a couple of years ago, advocated, or at least paid some kind of lip service, to this one-state solution, which to me was inexplicable. Of course, he's not the prime minister. He's not the one with the power to make things happen. But he did say things like that. What was that about? Yes, he's a person who comes from... To be clear, he he comes from the right wing. He comes from the Kud. And so for him, the idea of dividing the land is, is abhorrent because for him, he's looking at it from the religious perspective and you can't divide the land. And so therefore, what do you do with the people who are on the land? And this is where his trajectory, his input comes in, his point of entry. But it's not unusual. His position is not unusual. We've seen other people like uh, the former speaker of the Knesset, Avram Borg, also come out right. with the same position as well. So these cracks are there and, they, and they're forming and more and more people are speaking about it. My fear is that there's also settlers who are speaking about it. Now, when they talk about one state, they're talking about one state with us being kicked out exactly. or with us as inferior. That's what they would like to see as the solution. But again, these are systems that I just don't think can be sustained over a long period of time. We're already seeing that these cracks are, are happening in, in the system. And I believe will continue to happen as time progresses. You know, one, I know that elections are not necessarily indicative of where a society stands, but, um, but in Israel, they kind of are. And you can see that if you look at the Knesset, there's 120 seats that are in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. Of those 120 seats, there are 102 who don't believe that Palestinians should have full rights. 102 of the 120 seats are occupied by people who don't believe that Palestinians should have full rights. Including Israeli Palestinians? Yeah, including them. Oh right, yeah, absolutely. Right, right. Um, and it's the 18 that remain that I think is the, is the more interesting part. That 18 is a number that is steadily growing. And that 18 is not growing just because of the vote of Palestinian citizens of Israel. It's growing because there are also Jewish Israelis who are beginning to dissent and who are beginning to see that the, the system is broken, who are beginning to open their eyes and seeing that it isn't just a question of Israel not having good propaganda, but that there's something deeply flawed with the state and deeply flawed with Zionism. And that's where my, my hope lies. Well, I'm certainly glad to hear about these cracks and these little rays of hope. But on the other hand, what we're seeing in the immediate future is a little bit discouraging. Over the past four years, the U.S. has had a, a relapse into white supremacy, I mean, overtly. Uh, we've yes. seen how hard it is to get past the legacy of colonialism and racism in many countries, uh, including in Palestine. According to, as you were mentioning, according to Israeli polls, about 75% of Israeli Jews are favorable to the displacements of Palestinians remaining in historic Palestine, which would complete the ethnic cleansing that started uh, in 1948. 
what explains this hardening of far-right attitudes in Israel? Or, or is this simply the nature of settler colonialism as happened in Algeria when the settlers were overtly, again, sympathizing with Hitler during World War II, not sympathizing with their own country, which was France? Or here in the U.S., where things are also kind of relapsing into terrible patterns of most whites or so-called whites, most Europeans or self-identified whites in this country, support Trump and his white supremacist policies. What, what explains this, uh, this current trend? I'm glad that you seem to be optimistic over the long term, but what's going on that there's no daylight between Israel and USA anymore, even on the lip service level? You know, I think that it's been interesting for me. I'm, I'm not a U.S. Uh, citizen. And so it's been interesting, although very depressing, to watch the convergence between the white supremacy movement and, and Zionists. Because this is something that Palestinians have been talking about for a very, very, very long time, that these are natural allies because Israel is a settler colonial state. And the white supremacists and the, uh, the Zionists coming together with their support for Israel. Now, I, I want to be clear, they're also anti-Semites. But, but it doesn't uh, stand in, their, in the way of the relationship at all. Exactly. That's, that's <laughs> There's so exactly much in common. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> the point I wanted to make is that although white supremacists are anti-Semite, they still support the state of Israel because their ideology of Zionism and their support for Zionism is, is converging with the Zionists. This is where you see just how, how flawed Zionism is and that you can see where its allies rarely rest. When you have an ideology of supremacy of one group over another, you can see that this is why the white supremacists then uh, feed into them, the, the Richard Spencers and, other, and others who openly tweet about their support for, for Israel because they want to have their image of having superior rights in the United States for whites be entrenched in the same way that superior rights for Jews is entrenched in, in Israel. And this is why they converge so so nicely with one another. Now, I don't have the magic formula of how to overcome it. I wish I did. One thing that is abundantly clear to me is that the issue of Palestine isn't just about Palestine. And that's why it's so important. It's the litmus test of so many other issues. It's the question of whether you believe in supremacy of rights whether you believe in apartheid, whether you believe in ethnic cleansing, whether you believe that refugees don't have a right to return to their homes, whether you believe that refugees don't have a right to return to their homes because they're not the same religion, whether you believe in torture, whether you believe in holding people without charge or without trial, again, all the things that Israel does, whether you believe it's okay to demolish homes, whether you believe it's okay to steal land, whether you believe it's okay to violate international law, whether you believe it's okay to maintain a siege and blockade and gun people down. This issue isn't just about Palestine. It's about the way we view the world as a whole. And that's why 
it's the cause is so important and this is why so many people continue to work on it because it isn't just about Palestine. It's about how we view the world as a whole. And this is why I believe that our liberation, meaning Palestine's liberation, is not just the liberation of us as a people in our land, but it's also the liberation of people who believe in freedom around the world. Challenging these structures, challenging these systems is vital, not just for us living in the country, but, but for others too. And this is why it's such an important global issue. You see Israel uh, be turning into the maestro of political repression everywhere, teaching police departments in this country how to use the latest, most sophisticated weapons and, and oh, yeah. surveillance technologies. There is a link. There clearly is a link. Finally, as political and military power shifts as we speak in increasingly right-wing fascistic directions, an interesting phenomenon, which you're talking about earlier, going in the opposite direction seems to be happening at the same time at the level of public opinion, even yes. within the West, which is critical because that's where power resides largely, with increasing support for BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions in the West, in the US, in Europe, and traditionally pro-Israel corporate media even starting to soften somewhat and their censorship of the Palestinian cause. Your editorial piece in the New York Times, I thought, was a great example of that. 20 years ago, there was no way Edward Said would have been allowed. I cite him because he's such a prominent figure, and we miss him a lot. He was denied any access to the media. His books wouldn't be reviewed. He wouldn't be able to publish such an editorial, let alone the average pro-Palestinian in this country. Uh, there was a form of blacklisting for any pro-Palestinian voices in this country. Do you see the New York Times as an emblem of this evolution? And if so, does it reflect the pressure from public opinion at the grassroots level and the work of organizations, grassroots organizations, increasingly more sympathetic to Palestinian rights? You know, this is such a great question. There was a piece that just came out, a research piece that was done by Dr. Maher Nassar. She just came out with a piece a little over a week ago in which she looked at the op-eds in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, and in The Nation. And what she found was that of all of the opinion pieces where people talk about Palestinians, I'm not talking news articles, I'm talking opinion pieces, where people talk about Palestinians, that in the New York Times, it's only 2% of those who talk about Palestinians are Palestinian. And in the Washington Post, the figure is even worse, where it is 1% of all of the op-eds that talk about Palestinians have a Palestinian voice in them. And the highest was the nation, where, again, it's 10%, only 10%. So when you're talking about the voices being censored, you're absolutely correct. By the way, this is a research that she did. I think she looked at 50 years of, of opinion pieces. For decades, we have seen the opinion pieces of the New York Times, and not just the opinion pieces, but also the news, covered by 
people who are Zionists and who are openly Zionists and who wag their fingers at Palestinians and, and tell us what we should do. We see entire news articles that are written about Palestinians without ever asking a Palestinian or quoting a Palestinian. Instead, again, it's the Israelis who are speaking and telling us what to do or speaking on our, our behalf or an American who's telling us what to do or who's speaking on our behalf. And so it's not only incredibly troubling, but I can give you an, an example of just something that happened very recently. As I, I'm sure your listeners may be recalling that we're roughly around the anniversary of the assassination of Tzach Rabin, uh, the 25th anniversary of, of his assassination back in 1995 at the hands of uh, an Israeli settler named Igal Amir. And so Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was invited by an organization to speak at an event commemorating him. And immediately on Twitter, there were people who pushed back against her and said, look, you have to understand what his legacy is. And his legacy was one of breaking the bones of Palestinians, one of even more than breaking the bones of Palestinians. Even when the peace process began, he had the choice and he had the ability to evacuate the settlers from Hebron immediately after the 1994 massacre in Hebron by an Israeli settler in the Ibrahimi Mosque in February of 1994. Instead of taking that choice and making that decision, he decided to fortify the presence of the Israeli settlers, to amp up the presence of the Israeli soldiers in the city of Hebron. And his decision continues to have ramifications to this current day, 26 years later, where the city is divided, where Palestinians need special permits to be able to get into parts of Hebron, where to go in to pray into a mosque, you have to pass through a metal detector while Israeli settlers can walk freely. And I tell you this story because the New York Times had the audacity to come out with an opinion piece criticizing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for not attending this Rabin event, rather than acknowledging the harm that Rabin caused. So for decades, we as Palestinians have had to live with the whitewashing of Israeli crimes, being told that somehow we should just ignore what Israel is doing because a person is labeled a peacenik. And on top of that, we are talked about rather than to. Our voices are not allowed to be expressed, as I mentioned, with this piece that Dr. Mahan Nassar has, this research piece that she has come out with. And so Yes, again, there are cracks that are starting to form, but it's certainly not enough. I will see that things have become better when instead of people criticizing her for not attending a Rabin event, they criticize the people who are holding the event for instead commemorating somebody who continued to push 
for apartheid, who supported policies and who advocated policies of breaking the bones of Palestinian protesters, and who, when faced with the choice of whether to end colonialism, instead decided to fortify it. This is when I know we will have, have achieved difference. Diana Butto is an international lawyer, activist, and former PLO negotiator. She spoke with Khalil Bendi. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Thank you.